Are you ready to study the scripture this morning? So I want you to get your Bibles out and get a, your journal or uh, something to write with. Uh, maybe you want to use the, uh, the worship guide. You can make notes on the other side of that. And uh, I want you to get ready and um, you can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Um, as you know, we've been studying the book of Philippians. And I've really been enjoying just looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these precious believers in Philippi, people that he loved deeply, he had such affection for, and, and they had experienced uh, many of the same things together. Um, and so they, we see Paul, and he's talking to them, he's coaching them, and one of our cornerstone scriptures is Philippians 4, Verse 10 through 13, and essentially says this. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. Everybody say that with me. I have learned the secret of being content. He says, I've learned the secret to being content. And there's some, that's the name of the series. And as we look at the book of Philippians, what we can see is that the secrets to the Apostle Paul's contentment, to his satisfaction in Christ, is all through this letter. It's all over the way he interacts and communicates with these, with these believers. And so we're looking into this letter, and then we're mining for the truths and the secrets. And so today, we're going to be starting at Philippians chapter 3. But before that, we're going to start in Romans 5. And so uh, are you there? All right. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that the entrance of it gives light. We pray that the life of God would flow from it. Point us to Jesus. Point us to the one who matters most. We acknowledge your spirit here. Teach us and train us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is going to be good. <laughs> I just wanted to see if you'd, I just wanted to see if you'd do it. <laughs> and most of you did. Some of you are like, uh-uh. I want to ask you a question. I want you to wrestle with something right here, right at the top. I want you to think about what answer people give. The most common reason people believe they will go to heaven in our American 21st century environment. What, you could say it like this. What do people say is the reason that God accepts them or loves them? Or the reason that God is okay with them? You might say, uh, you might describe it this way. What is a good Christian really like? What does a good Christian actually do in most people's eyes? The answer, most likely, that you're thinking of is I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I'm, I'm a good person. I, I do my best. I try to, you know, love people. And I try to do good things, and I think Jesus is okay with me. God is okay with me because I'm a good person. I don't think God would ever send me to hell because I'm good. It's a, difficult, it's a difficult issue, isn't it, to deal with in our culture? Because it doesn't have anything, that answer doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't have anything to do with how good or even how bad you are. It's about something entirely different. 
In fact, it's not really about what you do. It's about who you know. And we wrestle with this all the time. Even as Christians, we, you know, there's nothing better than seeing a brand new believer who realizes that they don't have to pay the penalty for their own sinfulness. That somehow they come to Christ, the revelation of who Jesus is comes to them. They realize that they're lost and dead in their sins. That they're full of shame and they carry heavy burdens around. And when they come to the revelation of the light of life and they realize who he is, that he is the one who can make their life what it was supposed to be. And they come to him and then they're just overwhelmed and they feel like these burdens have been taken off their back and they're totally released and freed from sin. They just love it. They, you can't shut them up. <laughs> they're so excited about what? About all the good stuff they do? No, they're so excited about the fact that even though their life is a shambles, even though they've done so many bad things, Jesus loves them and accepts them just as, he, as they are and then he begins to work in them. Something starts happening to them. And then a little bit at a time, slowly, sometimes what happens is Christians, we just kind of go through our journey and we're going and we're trying to do what's right and trying to do good, trying to make things all happen the right way. And, and somewhere along the way in that journey, <laughs> you get down here as a Christian two or three years down the road. And all of a sudden, things have turned around on you. If you have not been vigilant or diligent in embracing the gospel, you have succumbed to doing good things and believing that it's only if you do the good things that Jesus loves you or somehow accepts you. And listen, we all like to do good things. I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole sense of self-satisfaction when you do good things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus is after, what God is after in your life is not self-satisfaction. He's not after you just feeling good about yourself. This is not a self-esteem gospel that we preach. What we're talking about is the forgiveness of sin of disobedience to God, of a, a forgiveness and a washing clean from all of your failures and all of your past and all of your mistakes, all of your ignorance. Here's the problem. People don't really know what kind of judgment they're actually under until... until they have a revelation of who Jesus is. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says we were enemies of God before we come to him. The Bible says that we're actually under God's wrath. We're actually under God's wrath because of disobedience, because of separation from him, because of sin, because sin and God, they, they don't go together. But God made provision to deal with sin. He made provision and he created a mediator, an advocate for you and for me. His name is Jesus. Now, here's the problem. Most people don't hear about God's wrath. They only hear about how much God loves you. But the love doesn't really mean much unless you understand how desperate you are, 
how deep into failure and sinfulness you are, how much under judgment and wrath you are. That's not God's plan for you. His plan for you is to pull, pull you out of that, pull you out of the cesspool of your failures and all, all, your, all your foolishness and actually pull you into his love and his mercy and his grace. That's the gospel. But here's the problem. If we don't understand how great the wrath is, we, we don't appreciate the love. Oh, yeah, God loves me. Yeah, I know he loves me. I'm a good person. God and I are cool. That's not the gospel. We have to really understand. And much like this, much like this discussion we're having now, Paul was having with these Philippian believers because there were people who were religious, people who uh, believed that they had special insight to God who were trying to convince them that there was something more that they needed to do to receive salvation, to receive Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 5. This describes it well. Here's the essence of what has happened to us. Look at verse 6. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, everybody say powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. I love this little phrase because he essentially says, look, people might die for somebody good, but nobody dies for somebody bad. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, even though you were so bad, here's what God did. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since Verse 9 says, since we have now been justified by this blood, the blood of Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Not just by trying to be good, but by receiving the work of Christ. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled now, the work of Christ is done. Now you've been reconciled to God. Now we can be saved through the life of God that's being poured into you. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. The good news is you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sins. The good news is God's wrath is on those who disobey him, but his love has been poured out and shown to us through Jesus, through Christ. Now, some people are insistent that they think that these good things that they do are going to somehow save them or rescue them from judgment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is to your left, several books, and we go to, we, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus is teaching, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching his disciples and those who are gathered around. Verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hmm, the will, those, that's a key phrase right there. We'll come back to this phrase in a few minutes. Verse 22 says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never, what does it say? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow, this is a revelation because you know what it means? It means that people who actually do good things 
can actually be evil in their hearts. That you can prophesy and cast out demons and do good things and help other people and still be suffering from the evil that is within you. And make no mistake, it is inside of every one of us. You have to look no further than your own two-year-old. <laughs> we see the, the, the human condition across the planet. It is horrible. We see the unfairness, the injustice, the violence, the brutality. We see it across the landscape of our culture. It is awful. Something, I mean, you know it, and I know it. Something is wrong. But it starts early. I have five kids, as most of you know. My youngest is now five. He had his birthday this week. So that seven-year-old, my, my six-year-old, who's about to turn seven, and my five-year-old, they get to play in together, and it is obvious that the sinful nature is inside of each one of them. <laughs> I did not have to teach either one of them how to be selfish. You, you do you realize that. I didn't have to teach him. I didn't have to say, okay, so here's how you do it. You hold it and don't let him have it. Don't ever share. Let me teach you how to do this now. How silly is that? Well, the reason it's silly is because something is wrong in here. From the beginning, from the moment you're born, there's a, this sinful state and there is this separation from God. God is calling you. He wants to rescue. He, made, he has made provision for you. This gospel message, we have, to, we have to remember this. This has to be core and central to everything we are. You have to be able to describe this to people. You have to be able to be on the watch for people who are trying to figure this out. Think about saying to your neighbor, man, the world is a mess. Man, it is crazy what's going on out there. Don't you ever wonder if something could set it right? Yeah, if we could just all do good and go to the soup kitchen, that would do it. We got more volunteers in Austin than we don't know what to do with. I, I heard a story from one of our groups who was ministering to some homeless people in a park. And they said, they turned to him and said, they were homeless people. And they said, if you're homeless in this town and you don't eat, there's got to be something wrong with you. Because there's food everywhere. I'm not saying anything about homeless people. I'm saying that something's wrong and we have to set it right. And just feeding people physical food isn't what fixes it. There's something that God wants to do that feeds them spiritually, that changes them from the inside out. And we have to know what that is. And, and I have one big point for you today. This is a one-point sermon. I don't have any other points. I don't have an outline. This is it. This is it. This is the one point. You can get, get your pen ready. Are you ready? This is it. This is the one point that I want you to get. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to, you don't have to make God like you by doing some good things. He can't love you any more than he already does. He loves you without limits. That's why he demonstrated it by sending Jesus. I want you to see how central Jesus is by just reading a few scriptures. Jesus is everything. Hebrews 1, chapter 3. Look at Hebrews 1. Let's just go on a little, a little fun journey. Just read some cool Jesus scriptures. Are you with me? 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Oh, don't you love this? Jesus is the illustration of who God actually is. Jesus and his love for mankind. Jesus and the way he was compassionate to the crowds. Jesus and the way he gave up his life for us. Jesus and the way he surrendered to the cross. He is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining all things by his powerful will. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's where Jesus is right now. He sustains all things. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a famous passage. You can go back to the left, several books, all the way back to the book of John Chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14, he says, The Word became flesh. Here's what he said. Here's what God is saying here. Here's what God is saying through John, who's writing this passage. He said, The words of God became flesh. The Word that God wanted to speak into creation became flesh. The Word is Jesus. Jesus is God's words. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the, I want you to just say that with me, one and only. Say it again, one and only, the one and only. There is no other Savior. There is no other Lord. There is no other rescuer. He is the one and the only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. His grace and truth coming into our lives. That's what he wants to offer you. Is this boring to you? This is such fundamental. This is like gospel 101, right? But it is so important for us to be able to say it. This is, this is, this is one of the things that you've got to have ready as your answer to your neighbor who's curious to why your life is different than his. And so it's so important that we have this. Look, now, one more scripture. Colossians, this is, this is like one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. Look at this. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Oh, I love that little passage. You should underline that right in your Bible. By him all things hold together. Do you know when you're going through that dark moment in your life? When your child is sick and you don't know what's going to happen, Jesus is the one who holds you together. When you're up to your neck in bills and you don't know how you're going to pay the next one and pay the mortgage, Jesus is the one who holds you together. When you're facing your most darkest hour, Jesus holds all things together, all things in creation and all things in your life as you surrender to him. He says, and he, in verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I love this word, supremacy, the supremacy. Many, many people want, they like Jesus. They want him to be part of their life. They feel like he's really good for them. He'll help them along the way. He'll give them peace. He'll give them security, and, and he'll help them when they're in trouble. But instead of Instead of having him as a buddy or as an addendum to your life, what Jesus wants is supremacy. Yeah. 
He wants to be supreme. He wants the supremacy in everything. He has it. The Bible says he has it. The question is, will you acknowledge it? And acknowledging it is the first step towards receiving his great love and his mercy in your life. The transformation that happens in you. And so this, I want you to see this. Jesus is everything. And I want you to use this as the context for now reading Philippians. Now just another page, a couple pages over to the left. I want you to read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And we will go through this together. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation for this passage because I think it brings clarity for us as we talk about it that some of the other translations don't necessarily have, um, and it'll just kind of help us as we flesh this out. All right, so verse 1 says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Whatever happens. This is a guy who understood what he was saying because he's sitting in a jail cell and he's writing this. He's saying whether you're getting persecuted or whether you're in trouble or whether you, everything's going great, here's what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice in God. Rejoice in what he's done. He says, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. He was trying to make sure that they were protected. Just a few years earlier, he was writing a letter to the Galatian believers, and he's talking about the same problems. He's worried that these believers are going to be overtaken by the same issues that were facing the Galatian believers, which is what leads him to safeguarding them. He's saying, I want you to safeguard your faith. I want you to understand what your faith is built on and how it works. All right, so he's going to coach them. He's going to say, here's how you safeguard it. He says, verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. (laughs) Pastoral moment for the Apostle Paul. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators. One other translation says, the mutilators of the flesh. Now, let's write down who these people were, all right? All right, number one, the, most Bible scholars believe that there was a group of people that he's articulating. Um, some of them we might call uh, Judaizers. Judaizers were this group of people that believed in the Torah and they believed in the law, but, and, they, and, and, they, and they also wanted to believe in Jesus and they wanted to put those two things together and say, you can believe in Jesus, but you also have to make sure that you obey every element of the Torah. It was Jesus plus something else. And the truth is, we can't add anything to the work of Christ. What the Apostle Paul is trying to guard them against is adding something to Jesus. He is everything. If you yield to him, if you surrender to him, if you embrace him, if you welcome him into your life, he is everything. He says, You dogs, those of you who do evil, if we look at it, we can see the dogs were this, it's this little play on words. The Apostle Paul goes through these three groups of people and he's using a play on words because the dogs are what the Jewish people called the Gentiles. Gentile people. They're dogs. Dogs weren't nice pets in those days. Dogs were rampant in the the countryside and, and they were verminous. Ooh, big word alert. Vermin. They, were, they, they weren't the kind of little, nice little, uh, uh, you know, 
pets that we keep in our homes, they were everywhere, and they, they were many of them wild, and it was, it was a term of insult. Everywhere we see it being used in the Bible, it's an insulting term. It's something lower than. So he's turning it on them, and he's saying, watch out for those dogs. You know, it's like, it would be like if you, were, if you were being mistreated by somebody and you received a letter like this from the Apostle Paul, can you think of the Philippian Blues and they open the letter and they're reading and they're like, beware of those dogs. They're like, oh yeah, they are dogs. They call us dogs, but they're the dogs. He says, and, and, here, and here it is. He's contrasting the Jewish, the Jewish belief that they are God's special people. You can be righteous, which really, if you use the word righteous, you look at a special relationship with God. You are in relationship with God. That's what righteousness means, that you are in right relationship with God. And so the Jewish people believe that their ancestry is what created their righteousness, that their lineage, because they belong to a group of people, that was all that it took. So he's saying that's not... That's not right. That's not what it takes. And then he says in verse 2, he continues, he says, those of you who do evil, this is a play on words from the good works people, people who were trying to say you have to do these good things. You have to obey every element of the law. And then he gets to the third group and he says, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, circumcision, as you understand, was a sign. It was the sign of God's people. The Jewish male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so on that eighth day, they would, they would receive this mark, this symbol of this special relationship with God. There's no doubt that that's how the Old Testament paints this picture. But the Apostle Paul is saying that God is doing something new. He's now sent a person, a representative, an advocate. The Messiah has actually come, and he's come in himself, he is all sufficient. There is nothing else that needs to be added to this. Notice what he says. He says, it's not circumcision that makes you saved. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. So I want you to look over here to Romans chapter 2. Look at this. This is the Apostle Paul saying these same things over here in Romans 2. Are you following me? Are you with me? Romans 2, 29, look what it says. It says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, verse 29, this is key. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Wow. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now, here's a revelation for most of you. It was never God's plan to just have the outward mark. God's plan from the very beginning was his people. He wanted his people to know him intimately and to have their hearts. He wanted the inward circumcision, the inward cutting away of their flesh he wanted them to know him. He, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, they all talk about circumcision of the heart, circumcision of their lips, a circumcision that happens in their lives that doesn't have anything to do with the outward sign. It was never God's intent that the outward sign be the point. 
It was his intention that the heart was what he was after. And the gospel message is about Jesus becoming the sacrifice for all sins, all failures, all foolishness. And he is the way that we embrace to know God, to know him. Now, keep going with me because we'll get to knowing Christ in just a second. Verse four says, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Now, that's a big deal. You know why that is? You know what that is? That is, I wasn't one of these guys that came to Jesus after, you know, and got circumcised when I was older. He's like, I obeyed the law perfectly. What he's talking about is the perfect execution of the law. You can write that down. Perfect execution of the law. He's saying, I did it perfectly. Notice what he says. He says, I was, I was, um, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a big deal because Benjamin was a favored tribe with Judah. A real Hebrew if there ever was one. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Most Bible scholars believe that he actually spoke the language, which, is, which was a special thing. He says, I was a member of the Pharisees. This was a sect. This was a, this was a certain part of the Jewish people. There was, all, there was a, only about 6,000 of them. And these were the ones, that, the Pharisee means the separated ones. They were exacting in their obedience. Exacting in their obedience. Think about it. Think about the brilliance of God knocking a guy off of a horse who was a perfect executor of the law. He obeyed in every respect. This is the Apostle Paul. He knocks him off a horse on his way to Damascus, and he says, why are you persecuting me? God ends up using the very guy who thinks he obeyed it perfectly, and really, he did. He says, he says, uh, who, he says I was a member of the Pharisee who demanded the strictest obedience of the Jewish law, and I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. How cool is it that God would use that guy to demonstrate to everybody and to make the case that it's not about obeying the law, that it's not about doing the good things, that it's not about making things right. Jesus is the one who makes things right, which is why if you go back up to verse two, are you still with me? Go back up to verse two, look what he says. He says, for we are, wor we are those who worship by the spirit of God and the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on Jesus Christ what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we put no confidence in human effort. It's an answer to each of the people that Paul is describing. Instead of people who rely on their fleshly lineage or their ancestry, he says, we are those who are born of the Spirit. Instead of, we are the true covenant people. We are the true covenant people of God. He answers the good works people or the bad works people, the ones who do evil, even though they're known for doing good works. He says, we don't try to rely on any good works. We don't rely on the good things that we do, and we're not concerned about some of the evil things we've done because we rely on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And then you see him saying it again in verse 2. He says, and we put no confidence in human effort. 
What's happening to us is a transformation. Verse 7, let's keep going. Verse 7. Well, before we go to verse 7, I want to go over to Galatians. Can you go with Galatians with me real quick? All right? This is like a real Bible study. <laughs> You're actually using your Bible on a Sunday morning. Imagine that. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3. Here's, here's what I want. I want you to hear this, and I want you to listen with your heart. Verse 10 says, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. That's pretty clear. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. You understand that the Pharisees especially believed that by obeying the law perfectly, by perfectly executing the law in their lives and teaching others to do it, that they would usher in the age of the, of the Messiah, the age of the next kingdom. They believed that this is what would create it. This is what would accomplish it, the perfect obedience. And if we could just perfectly obey, then what would happen is Jesus, the Messiah, would come and release us and free us from the dominant domination of, of the Romans and do, from dominating uh, domination from anybody else, and we would establish a kingdom. That's what those Pharisees believed. The kingdom of God that was coming, it didn't come that way. Verse 13 says, but Christ has rescued us from this curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. It's not your lineage. It's not your actions. It's not the good works that you do. It's not any outward sign. The way God works is he starts on the inside and he gets to know you. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what, don't good works have any role? Absolutely they do. You're actually made for good works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says. You were actually created to do good things, but you can't do the good things to get God to love you and accept you. What you have to do is you have to accept the work of Christ. You have to surrender everything in your life, full, complete, total surrender. And as you do that, what happens? <gasps> Something transforms on the inside. You begin to want to do what's right because you love him. The love that you have for what he's done for you, for him, his rescuing you from the shame of your past, from the foolishness of your history. And he begins to rescue you and you begin to want to love him. You begin to want to obey him. You begin to change from the inside out, not from the outside in. The gospel is an inside out message. Back to Philippians and we'll finish it out. Look at what he says here. Verse 7, I once thought that these things, he's talking about all of, his, all of his qualifiers, being a Pharisee, making sure, you know, he was circumcised on the eighth day, uh, being a member of the tribe of Benjamin, zealously persecuting the church and righteously obeying the law. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless, worthless. 
because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of what? Of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. One translation calls it refuse, excrement. It is so detestable to try to prove that you are good enough, capable enough to get God's acceptance. It's worthless. It doesn't have any value. There is nothing to it. The only thing that matters is Jesus. Notice what it says. He says, I count it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. Now, I want you to see that word. I want you to circle know, because knowing Christ, you know what that is? That is a very intimate explanation. It's the same word in the Bible that's used when Adam knew Eve and conceived a son. It's intimate knowledge. It's knowing who he is and him knowing you. He says, I want to know this Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Here's the way it works. It requires a tremendous amount of humility and faith to not put any trust in the things you can accomplish. Because you want to feel good about yourself and what you can do. But Jesus asks you to lay all that down and trust in what he's done. Jesus asks you to embrace him totally and completely and give up everything that you know, everything that you have in your corner, everything on your side of the ledger, everything that is a credit to you. He wants to wipe it out. And he wants to put himself there. He wants to stamp over your life, paid in full. You don't have to do anything to pay the penalty for your own sinful nature, your own foolishness, your own disobedience. You embrace him. And what happens is he begins to work in you. It's an incredible process. And he begins to put this desire to know him. But you only get to do that if you're willing to surrender to the suffering becoming like him in his death, by giving up everything, by humbly surrendering to him that he is everything. I don't know if I've said it before. I don't know if you've heard it, but Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And once you settle that, once, you, once you've settled this is the way it is, I'm going to give everything to him, he begins to transform you by the power of his resurrection. The same power that resurrected him from the dead is the same power that begins to live in you. But the power doesn't come. Now listen, the power doesn't come unless you're willing to enter into the suffering. The power doesn't come unless you're willing to enter into the humility and faith that is required to say, okay, Jesus, it is all about you. It's not about me. Okay, God, it's not about the good things I can accomplish. Okay, I trust you. I surrender to you. I'm so grateful for you. Now use me. He'll use you. You'll start doing great things. But if you try to do the good things first as a way of saying, I'm a Christian, or as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm, Jesus loves me, you'll miss it. You'll, 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 you'll enter into dead religion. Let Jesus transform you, consume you, take you over, and then let him begin to work in you and prepare you for the good works 
that he has designed for you. That's how it works. That's the gospel. That's the message. That's the good news. You've got to be able to say this. We have to be able to say this. We have to be able to articulate this to our neighbors. This isn't about a religion that we do all these things. This is about knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, knowing his revelation, knowing his resurrection power, knowing him in his death, surrendering to him with everything we have. All right? Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the the power of the message. Thank you, Lord, that you, you are rescuing us from our own sinful nature, our own foolish behavior. Father, we thank you that you didn't just come just to somehow modify our behavior. You came to transform us from the inside out. You came to give us life. You came to let us share in who you are. and You came to allow us to share in your great love. Trying to do the right thing is not what makes us a Christian. Surrendering to you is I pray for every person across this auditorium, God, that you would help us to embrace the truth, the message, the contentment that is found in the gospel. The contentment that is found in knowing the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The contentment and satisfaction that is only found in knowing that Jesus is everything that he is everything I need, that he is everything in my life, that he has the answer and the solution to every issue and every problem. This is the kind of surrender that we want to have. I pray that you'd help us wherever we are, whatever we're facing, whatever's going on in us, help us to surrender it. Whatever's happening in our minds, whatever doubts have crept in, whatever, whatever foolish things have crept into our lives, Lord, we, we, we choose you. We choose you. Father, I thank you for this. Help us to live this way, knowing that you are everything. The good news. Now, before we go here, I want to just, with your eyes closed and heads bowed, if there's somebody here who wants to commit their lives to Christ, you want to say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I'm coming back to him somehow. Maybe it's the first time that you've really given your life to Christ in a meaningful way. Or maybe it's the first time in a very long time because somehow you've turned away from him. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. What I want you to do is just say yes to him. And I just want you to declare that, confess that by just lifting your hand so I can see it all over the room. If you're giving your life to Christ today for the first time or the first time in a long time. Yep, I see you. Anybody else? Yep. Yep, up in the top. Yep, I see you. Four, five. Anybody else? This is your moment. This is Jesus speaking to you. And it's like he's saying, you can sense it. If, you're, if you have that sense in the, in the pit of your stomach, like God is calling you, don't resist. Just yield. Just surrender to him. Anybody else? No more works. 
No more trying to be good enough. Just surrender. Giving up your life. Now, Father, I pray for every person who raised their hand, and I pray that you would give them a revelation of who you are. Help them in every way to surrender the areas of their life, the habits, the mistakes, the good works, the bad works, everything. Lord, we just, we just lay it down at the foot of the cross right now, and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and inhabit our lives. Come and change us from the inside out. Make me a new person. Make us new people out of people from diverse backgrounds and every culture. Lord, you've put us together as one people who know Jesus. I thank you for this. I pray that you would do that work in each of our hearts. And Father, we choose to surrender. We choose to follow you. We choose to give our lives to you with everything that we've got, everything that we are, everything that we have, so that the world will see that you're alive. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.